welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. I don't know, Josh Shepard, I think we got two advertisements in there for Black Flynn Supply as well. I see you out there, yeah. <laughs> you give up more free hats and we'll do the advertising for you. So we're in this series called uh, What We Believe. I grew up Methodist. I'm a third generation Methodist preacher and for years it was said, oh, I'm going to be a Methodist so I can go where I can believe whatever I want to believe. Oh yeah, thanks. Hey kids, go learn about Jesus. Thank you, Miss Whitney. Thank you, Miss Karen. There we go. And, um, you know, it's not really true. We, we're not Unitarians, right? We're Methodists. We have distinctive beliefs. But for the Methodist church, the easiest way, uh, my wife says this is awkward, so I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, the easiest way theologically to think about the Methodist church is it's a love child between the historic liturgy of the church out of Rome and the Reformation. Uh, you've got the liturgy that we often use within Holy Communion. We're going to be referencing that. And then also you've got the Reformation theology, which personalizes the faith. But Methodists have long been sort of the middle road kind of folks, in the sense that we provide space where someone grew up Roman Catholic and Southern Baptist. I can't tell you how many times they end up Methodist, right? Because the Catholic gets a little bit of the liturgy that they're used to, and the Baptist gets almost the preaching they're used to, and they sort of, they sort of settle but we're just not, the Methodist Church has distinctive beliefs. But historically, until roughly the 1990s, we so strongly emphasized the social witness of the church, we lost touch with really the, the basic core teachings. And so we prayed together and thought, you know, as a, as a congregation, we, we ought to revisit what do we believe? We do believe things distinctive and biblically based, and we want to ground ourselves in that. And so today, we're going to take a look at Holy Communion. Now, we often say Last Supper, Holy Communion. Sometimes I'll say Eucharist. So, Holy Communion is the meal that Jesus instituted at the Last Supper. So, before we just launch into the text, here's some things I want you to listen for. You'll find the Last Supper recorded in Matthew chapter 26. You'll find it in Luke chapter 22 and Mark chapter 14. Now, I don't have time to do what's called a parallel uh, deconstructing of the nuances of differences because each of those has something specific. You noticed I left out the Gospel of John because John actually does not have Holy Communion. Doesn't have a Last Supper. It has Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And yet it's John who says, that records Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. No other Gospel does that. So this is the mystery, the complexity, the depth, and the gift. The disciples are at Passover. Early when we get into the text, you're going to hear the word Passover. Each year in the Jewish faith, all of the people would come back to Jerusalem for Passover that could make it. And if not, you would celebrate in your home. And Passover was the celebration for how God delivered the people from Egypt in the time of slavery. It was the oldest continuing remembrance. And so when we think about Holy Communion, we often just sort of fast forward right into things and we forget Jesus didn't say, hey, after I'm dead and rise again, um, this is a really cool thing you'll do later. But he transforms actually in the moment. In the same way that we unpacked a little bit last week, Jesus' baptism wasn't a Christian baptism. And actually all those people baptized before the death and resurrection of Christ 
were not Christian baptisms. It was a Jewish act of ritual cleansing. And one of the ways that we can justify that we baptize infants is it's a marking to belonging in the same way that circumcision in the Jewish faith was a marking to belonging. But believing is about professing faith in Christ. And so when they come to the Passover meal, this is rooted in a Jewish understanding of the Passover meal. It's a Seder meal inside of Passover. And we're going to unpack some of the elements. So you're going to find that a couple of disciples are going. They're preparing a room. And then also I want you to listen very carefully. Who is at the table? Who is at the table? And then we're, during the time after the reading of the scripture, I want to unpack in kind of a... Um, Biblical way of unearthing some of the understandings of what's going on in communion. We're going to look at Mark chapter 14. It will be in verses 12 through 26. Uh, Mark is the shortest of the Gospels and the most succinct. And so that's the one I'm choosing to work with. But again, you'll find similar but a few different nuances in Matthew chapter 26 and also in Luke chapter 22. But in respect to the gospel, I'll ask if you'll stand for a moment for the reading of the gospel as you are able. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he went, he said to his disciples, telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went to the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man that who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And while we were, they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said. Truly I tell you, I will not drink from it again to the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated and let's pray together. Oh God, may your spirit stand between me and your people so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together will be shaped, formed, and molded into the good news of the gospel of Christ in whose name we've gathered, in whose name we pray, and in whose name we will depart this place and seek to serve you faithfully. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Holy Communion. It is 
dripping with biblical significance when we look at what happens in the Seder meal. The Seder meal itself would actually have four separate chalices on the table. Each of those chalices would be filled with wine and would represent something different as they go through the Seder liturgy. There was a whole liturgy that accompanied it. So in the, in the pause of the text, it said that Jesus gave thanks. This part of the Hallel of the Haggadah of the Hebrew as you come to the part of the Seder meal and people will give thanks. It's a, a blessed are you, O God of Israel, the God who delivers. And so we're going to look in a minute about which cup was what, and we're also going to jump forward into verse 25. But the bread, let's start with the bread. The bread would be matzah bread. Have you ever had that? The matzah bread, it's, just, it's unleavened bread, it's like crackers. Look, what we use, this is not Jesus' communion bread from the Seder meal. I guarantee you they did not have Hawaiian sweet bread, right? <laughs> Promise you that. There's some things I can say with absolute certainty, and that's one of them. You ever wonder why we use grape juice? I mean, come on. What about the wine, right? It's just grape juice. But there's a reason. The reason it's grape juice and not wine is that in the 1920s, around before the 1920s, there was a social movement within the United Methodist Church. At that point, it was Methodist Church. And we joined the struggle of people who were... Um, who were alcoholics, who were trying to, to be in AA and sobriety. Um, it's long before AA, but, but the church leaned into that. And so the church made a conscious decision to move away from wine to grape juice. But we had a problem. And the problem was there wasn't any place that was a pasteurization mass plant, but there was a United Methodist pastor whose last name was Welch. Not related to Jim Welch, right? who later became Bishop Herbert Welch, whose family had the first grape juice pasteurization plant for mass distribution. And what the church did is it said, we want to stand in solidarity with a sobriety of people because previous to the 1920s in that era, the opioid crisis, cocaine, meth, all the stuff we've got going on today, that's what was the prevalent thing then. It was the, they called it the devil in the bottle. And it wrecked people's families. So the church said, we want to, we want to be with people. Um, and, and help them in the sobriety. So we went to grape juice, and it had been that way. In the 1996 General Conference of the Methodist Church, it was approved to use wine again. Now, we use the individual cups. We, we prefer the common cup. Well, we really do. The individual cup is simple because COVID sucks. So um, it's just one way that we found the comfort level of most people being present, okay? And if it makes your parents feel better, use the old Keen's English. Kids, I'm going to tell you. You can't say that. That's a bad thing to say. Don't say COVID sucks. Say COVID sucketh. Put a King James on it. But it, I mean, we just, that's where we are, okay? Now, I've often wanted, even before we used a common cup, I grew up with, how many of you were Methodist growing up or maybe Presbyterian? Do you remember the little hard little crackers we called chiclets that would come by? You could bust a tooth on. Holy cow. And even back then, I always wanted to put wine in a random cup. Because someone would come along thinking they're getting grape juice, and they get a little bit of dry red wine. That'll wake you up. All right? Because, and seriously, we have made communion, while it is a sweet encounter on the palate, we have domesticated Jesus. This is a pottery barn Jesus too often, because it's sweet grape juice, 
It's sweet bread. You know, you ought to get your attention when you encounter Jesus. I remember I played football at Austin College for one year. It's a Presbyterian school. I'd never been exposed to communion any other way. They had a common cup. I knew what that was. I was expecting grape juice. We got bread. And then everybody drank from the common cup, right? I got to the common cup and I took a big swig. I was expecting grape juice. I got a really bad red wine. And I'm not talking Mad Dog 2020 sweet either. It wasn't Boone's. It was horrible. When you meet Jesus in communion, some days it ought to take your breath away. It, it should be one that lasts in your memory. So as we come to this place... We know that it was wine that Jesus used. That's a fact. Now, a couple of cups have already gone by. Number one, what was the cup that he lifted? We think that the cup that Jesus lifted is actually the cup of redemption. And what did he say when he lifted the cup at the Seder meal? This is the blood of my covenant, right? So this was represented what's called the cup of redemption. It was the third cup at the Seder meal. And the celebrant, which would be Jesus would take the cup of wine, he would dip his finger in it, and then it's sort of ceremonial flick once, twice, or three times, and then everybody would drink from it. So when we think about the actual cup, that's what we believe Jesus held was the cup of redemption, which he claims is his blood. It represents the sacrificial nature of all the sacrifices that have been brought. Now you want to hold that in mind, third cup, because there were four cups. So hold that in mind, fourth cup. What was the bread? Bread would have been the regular matzo bread. Um, another gospel tells us that it's Judas who places his hand in the cup. If you Google, you can. You can see a Seder plate. It would have a roasted egg, a lamb shank. It would have some salt water and some bitter herbs. Each of these are representative. And for example, the bitter herbs would be dipped in the salt water because it would make it kind of tart. Uh, the, 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 the sourness, the, the bitterness of the tears that they remembered. Um, the, the lamb shank was just representative. The roasted egg was representative. But there was something called showerset. In the showerset was actually walnuts, apples, and cinnamon that would be sort of mashed up together. Sometimes they put some honey in it. And it would be representative of the mortar. Okay, so if we're remembering that they were celebrating God's deliverance of slavery from sin and death, it represents the mortar and the bricks that they had to make while they were slaves in Egypt. It was the only thing they could have dipped the, cut, the, the bread in. There's no absolutes. There's no footnotes that say exactly when this happened. You have to read the text, compare the parallel passages. But we do believe that that's when Jesus says it's the person who dips their hand in the cup with me. Now, Mark doesn't say that Jesus said, that's right, Judas, it's you. Time out for eternity. See ya. All right. Another gospel says that Jesus looks at Judas and says, what you've got to do, do quickly. Two of the Gospels do not have Judas being dismissed. And in Mark, Judas appears to still be at the table. So at the very least, at the very least, Judas is welcome at the table of communion and Jesus offers his life to him. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first... We would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work.
Uh, this is why we in our tradition celebrate an open table of communion, because we invite everybody to come. We'll talk a little bit about kids, where it is, etc., and what's in the elements in a moment. But then when Jesus says he broke the bread and lifted it, there was something also at the Seder meal called the afikoman. And the afikoman was three pieces of matzah bread. So you take two pieces of matzah bread that would not be wrapped, and they'd be here. They'd take the middle piece of matzah bread, wrap it in a cloth, and it would be in between the two, and then it would be covered. And towards the end of the meal, that portion would be broken out. And traditionally, when you had a family gathering, the portion of the matzah bread that was wrapped up that was broken would be hidden. And then when it's found and celebrated, they would bring it to the oldest male in the house would be the celebrant, and the child would get a quarter or a coin of some kind. So don't go too far down the metaphorical route here. But the imagery of Jesus' body being broken for us, right? This was already in the Seder meal that this would be a broken piece of the bread and it represented God feeding his people and we believe this is when Jesus said, this is my body which is broken for you. All right, so these, these are rooted in the Hebrew understanding. But Jesus transforms them and brings depth to them. Now, fast forward to verse 36 in Mark chapter 12, and what you will see is that Jesus is in the garden. He's kneeling. And do you remember what he prays? He says, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. If in any way it could, let this cup pass from me. What cup was he talking about? You could say, well, he just knew it was coming. That's true. Fully divine, fully human. Jesus knew it was coming. Another way of thinking about that is, at the end of the Seder meal at Passover, the youngest child would go to the door and open the door and they would open the door for Elijah and the celebrant would wait to see if Elijah was coming and they would hold up the fourth cup known as the cup of Elijah, which represented the full restoration of Israel. Elijah, who went up by a chariot of fire and did not taste death, would come back and restore Israel for God. Full restoration. Let us see if Elijah will come. And we didn't next year... In Jerusalem, they would say. And they would drink from the cup of Elijah. So when Jesus is kneeling in the garden, it is very possible that what is happening is Jesus kneels, the one whose body would be broken, whose blood would be spilt, whose death and resurrection would bring the full restoration of any come, who Paul says later, anybody mouth confess and heart believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, you shall be saved. That this is, this is the cup that's being spoken of. That Jesus is literally pouring his life out. But because he is fully human, he knows the pain that is going to happen. Because he does not get out of the humanity of life. Because he's fully divine, he knows what is to come and what it represents. He says, God, if there's any other way. God, if there's any other way. So here's a sidebar note unrelated to Holy Communion. If Jesus, being the very nature of God, fully divine and fully human, was able to say, God, this is what I want, but I, if it's any way different, would you make it happen? But not whose will? Not my will, but thy will be done. This is the biblical and theological basis for why we close our prayers in Jesus' name. Or some will say, for Jesus' sake. Because what we're basically saying is, God, I poured my heart out, but what I want is for your righteousness to triumph over the desires of my human heart. And if it was okay for Jesus to say that, it's probably okay for you too. 
right? You pour your heart out. God, this is what we want to have happen. Now, some practical words. What about kids? Could kids take communion? Let me get to that by answering it this way. When you think of Holy Communion, I want you to think of a, a spectrum. And this is not politically right or left, okay? So don't go there. This is not right and wrong. This is just sort of a linear difference of, of what's distinctive. If you've grown up Roman Catholic or been around the Roman Catholic tradition, a prevailing practice in the Roman Catholic tradition is a belief that when the pastor says the words of consecration, technically it's known as the epiclesis. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us gathered here out of love for you, O God, and upon these elements of the bread and the cup, or bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we might be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Holy Spirit and your Holy Church, one honor, God, amen. So this is... This is the epiclesis. At that point in a Roman Catholic tradition, most of the Roman Catholic tradition, you can do some variances looking at Vatican I and Vatican II, but it's fairly prevailing that it's called transubstantiation. And some will say, well, it's pseudo-transubstantiation. Here's what this means. It means that the elements themselves become transformed at a level of substance, transubstantiation. Here's what I absolutely love about our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. This is a sacred, holy meal. And we need to lean into that. We need to lean into it's so sacred and holy that these elements are transformed. That that's why when someone comes, that literally the priest will dip a portion of their bread into the wine and place it in the mouth of the person. That you don't touch the elements. Friends, this is sacredness. The other part that I really love about our Roman, sister, uh, Roman Catholic sisters and brothers is that they, they want you to be in right communion. You have to be in right relationship. Look, every church doesn't get it right, okay? Remember the spectrum I talked about? The strength in the Roman Catholic tradition is to have people understand that they need to be in a forgiven state in a righteous state to be able to receive Holy Communion. And if they're not and they've been told they haven't, they have to come forward like this. Now, the weakness of that is, and part of the reason I'm part of the, what's known as the Protestant tradition is, um, who gets to decide what that looks like, and this doesn't look really great all the time, all right? Just going to leave it there, okay? But there are some positive aspects, okay? So that's, that's this side of the spectrum. Now, the other side of the spectrum is, oh, it's just a memorial meal. We can do it with donuts and coffee. We're good. And that, that, so what happens is, you've demystified it so much that it really is nothing but coffee and donuts, and I'm not in that camp either. So what do we believe as Methodists? Here's what we believe. We believe that when the prayer is prayed, that these still are ordinary elements of juice and bread, but we use the phrase, a mysterious real presence of Christ. In other words, they may just still be ordinary bread and ordinary juice, but it becomes the real presence of Christ. And Wesley even went as far as to say that Holy Communion itself can be a converting ordinance. So that's our historical heritage not to withhold communion from somebody unless they really think Alabama is the best team ever. But I'm sorry, I just slipped out. Sorry. <laughs> Max, you hear that? All right, that one's for you, buddy. But, but it's God who's present here, right? That they're ordinary elements, but, but we don't just throw them away. We, we treat them with reverence. So we pour the elements back out to the ground. We distribute the bread to the birds. But 
But for children, in a, again, on the Roman Catholic side, you have to go through a certain amount of catechesis and be trained a certain way, and then you have your first communion. And so I don't want to be dismissive, but I'll just say this. If anybody can tell me what really is happening here, then you can have communion. All right, so in a way, no one really knows. It's a mystery, isn't it? When I was serving communion in my very first appointment, it was in Louisville, Texas. Bob Spencer's on the other side. He's working his way down. Geneva Bratton had made the bread, and he's panning out the bread. I'm coming down, and I'm handing out the bread. I'm standing there. We're doing the individual cups. And I look down. Here's a father. And I noticed him. They've been visiting a couple of weeks and noticed him. And, and the little boy evidently never been to communion before. And so he looked up at his dad in his little cup, and he reached over and he went, Cheers! <laughs> That's all you need to do. Do you know what the historical uh, history teaches about the, where Cheers came from? Cheers was from the medieval times that when they went to get their pints in their courts, you would slam your mug together so strongly and say cheers because it basically said, whatever is in my cup is in yours, whatever in your cup is in mine. So if there's three or four of us, in other words, our fate is shared together. Don't you love that imagery for communion? Maybe the kid got it. All right? That this is a sense of cheers, that God is celebrating life with us. But for children, it's really up to the parents, right? The only thing I ask you is this. First is, it's not a grab and go. All right, this is not an Oreo 100 calorie bag in the pantry, right? Because we don't take communion, we receive it. So, one of the things we do is we ask to put the hands out. The child receives the bread and drinks the cup. And that's, that's perfectly fine to do. And all are welcome to come because we believe God is the one who's the primary actor here, He's the one who's inviting us to this place. Here's the other really cool thing in our tradition, every one of you can be communion stewards. Every one of you. From the service at 9.30, I pulled out a portion of the bread. I was with Joe and Helen Zellemeyer as, um, on Thursday saying prayer with him because he was going to MD Anderson to, to get some tests. And Friday, they would go back for results. The results came back Friday, uh, Friday night. Saturday at 1 o'clock, he had his first treatment. He is in stage 4 lung cancer that's also in his femur, the base of his brain, a spot on his back and his lung. It does not look good. It does not look good. And what they said to me was, we haven't been able to be in church in several weeks. Joe hadn't felt good. Could you bring us communion? So he's having his second treatment today. Tonight, I will go over. And I will take some of the bread, will hold out some of the juice, and I will take them communion. And in that way, they're going to feel connected to what we're doing. We have the um, gluten-free elements here. These are also all-in-ones. And if you have a neighbor who's never been to church, you've got a loved one who's working, can't be with you or sick. Friends, we have these consecrated elements that you can come and say, hey, I'd like to take communion home. I'd like to share it together as a family. Because this is what we believe about communion. You see, the liturgy of communion and what communion is ought to seep so deeply in our bones that it just emanates from our life, wherever we are. Even if we are like Blake DeLacer coming out of wisdom tooth surgery and somehow God speaks. And I have Blake's permission and his girlfriend Michaela's permission to show you what that was like. She knows you're okay. Amen. 
Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You gotta get the communion elements. The what? The communion elements. Mm-hmm. Because what what is some of you is ordained. Mm-hmm. Has to take it into Okay. I had to get that. This is three minutes long. I'm not going to do that whole thing to you, right? He comes out, and what he's saying is, we consecrate as pastor the elements. So one of the limiters or one of the distinctive aspects in our tradition is that a clergy should be the one to consecrate the elements. And it's only meant so that the, the, the reverent side of regarding the elements would be revered. But the practical side is anybody can distribute. And what, what he was going through was, on Sunday mornings when they receive communion in the loft, the youth come by and make sure that the elements have been consecrated and picked up. And he's wanting to make sure that Michaela knew that Stacy said she was going to do that as a local pastor and to get them up. You know, we laughed at that the first time we saw it in staff. I mean, the 30th time we saw it. I mean, this 50th time. I mean, every time we've seen it since, right? How cool is it for me as a pastor to be a part of a team that's so embedded in who he is, knowing the sacredness of this mysterious real presence of Christ, the first thing he can mumble out is, don't forget the communion elements. Don't forget the communion elements. So friends, when you come today, you come to a table that is open to everybody. Now I'll close, and this one's a delicate one because um, I don't want to be, and if I've said anything that, has, that you think is if I've said anything that has been derogatory or demeaning to the Roman Catholic tradition, that is not my intent. I'm just trying to help you know the distinctive aspects of it, okay? And remember we talked about if someone has received Holy Communion, they're not supposed to, they come forward like this. I'm at Bear Creek, it's 15 years ago, it's Christmas Eve, we're serving communion, and a couple comes up and they're like this. And so... Um, I'm sort of a closet, what I call a closet Episcopalian Anglican Catholic in the sense that I love Holy Communion in those moments. I'll pause. I just really want the sacredness of that moment to be there. And I simply said, I, I noticed that you are probably from the Roman Catholic tradition. And, and I kind of leaned over so I could see both him and her. And they said, yes. And in our tradition, if you have repented of your sin, did you participate in the, uh, in the confessional? They said, Yes. So then you are welcome at this table if you desire. You don't have to take communion, but it is offered to you. And they began to sob. So much so that one of the people of our members stepped out of the pew to stand with them, put their arm in it, and later found out it had been about 11 to 12 years since they were allowed to receive because they weren't in connection with their community. And they held over the only language that they heard, which is, you're not welcome here, which was not the message. The message was restore yourself to community. But man, it was so cool to be a part of that moment. And so the confession is really important to us, that we confess. And do you know you've already done that? When Ryan was doing that opening song, he had that sense of confession brought to you. Folks, you're ready to come to the table. You're ready to come to extend your hands to receive the bread that's been broken, the cup that is given to you. And this is God's message. You are welcome at this place. But you need to be different when you encounter Christ. So you leave differently than you arrived.